0: Apple unveiled this long-awaited Vision Pro headset. Is the era of augmented and virtual reality finally upon us? More men are getting vasectomies post dobs What does this trend tell us about birth control in this country? Then meat consumption is on the rise as well as vegetarianism. We'll talk about how these two seemingly contradictory data points can coexist. And finally, we're solving fewer murders than ever before as a country. Why and what can and should we do about it? all of this on today's episode of The Lost Debate Show. Hello, everybody. I'm Ravi Gupta.
1: And I'm Ricky Schlott.
0: Well, Ricky, this is a trendy Tuesday episode. We haven't done one of these in a while. And there's some fun trends. And actually, one that came our way yesterday, Apple unveiled this Vision Pro headset. I actually had a chance to watch it live. I thought it was going to, you know, I, I expected it to be largely ridiculed, but I actually think the reaction was a little bit more positive than I expected. And just to run down a couple of pieces of this, this is both an augmented and virtual reality headset. So augmented reality means that you could see both like the physical world around you, but virtual objects kind of on top of that. Virtual reality means that you're fully transparent, uh, transplanted in a virtual world. So you don't really see what's going on around you. And there's a couple cool features of this that set it apart. It's controller free. So you kind of browse apps and use your hands to move things around and your eyes to move things around. Um, so you can like click on things just using your fingers. Um, you could see through it. And people can see your eyes if you want them to. But obviously, if you're in the virtual reality, it kind of closes it off to kind of signal to people around you that you're in some virtual world. It's pretty lightweight compared to other virtual reality headsets based on the reviews. Apparently, it has really strong audio. And on the content front, they announced a partnership with Disney where Disney would be producing content for this as well. Bob Iger got on the stage. But Ricky, the, the biggest part of this is the cost. This will run at $3,499. Uh what's your take on this? Do you think this is a this is finally the era now of
1: virtual and augmented reality? I'm afraid that it is. I'm not thrilled to say that I feel like maybe this is I mean it looks to me like kind of the Google Glass meets like AirPods Max aesthetically. It's like It was like a weird large ski mask sort of situation. I, I feel like it does seem a lot more promising the reviews that I'm hearing are that the like the way that the eye scrolling and the hand things work um, are pretty intuitive and kind of like akin to riding a bike that people get the hang of it pretty quickly um versus a lot of like the the meta stuff that's a that's a whole lot more clunky but I hate that people like it personally I don't know I find it really really creepy um, but before I go down that rabbit hole perhaps we should let Apple explain explain itself um, in this promotional clip that they have for Apple Vision Pro.
2: When you put on Apple Vision Pro, you see your world and everything in it. Your favorite apps live right in front of you, but now they're in your space. This is Vision OS, Apple's first ever spatial operating system. It's familiar yet groundbreaking. You navigate with your eyes. Simply tap to select, flick to scroll, CNC. and use your voice to dictate. It's like magic.
0: A bunch of reporters got early access to this, and one of them was Joanna Stern at The Wall Street Journal. And she, like almost every review I read from anybody who had access to this technology, was pretty positive on the technology. And she said essentially there are two use cases as she sees it. One is working which is what I think sets us apart from the Oculus in in addition to all the quality differences, which it seems by all accounts, this is a like stronger piece of technology generally. But given that this is Apple, they have all of these apps that are already part of Apple's ecosystem, everything from FaceTime to email to messages, et cetera, and like all the different apps that are on your watch, et cetera. So they inherently just have a larger series of tools that you could use to work and so that was her first use case, and the second was watching. And she basically said, "Hey, I'm not a big 3D movie person, but when I watched Avatar 3D on this thing, it was mind blowing." So I think when you take those two things together, you start to say, "All right, I could start to see what adoption of this thing looks like." And largely speaking, you know, you had The Verge, uh, Nile Patel, you had Tech Crunch's Matthew Panzerino, you had Strategeries or Strategeries Ben Thompson. They all. Uh, demoed this thing, largely were extremely positive of of it. Even Palmer Lucky uh, from Oculus, which was acquired by Meta, had a really strong review of it as well. So I think... Um, The thing that I think sets this thing apart is that Apple has so much to offer that Meta does not have because of the fact that we all carry around iPhones. A lot of us have Apple Watches and run iOS systems, generally speaking, so already familiar with the suite of apps that they have. And so when I looked at this demo, there's a lot of cool entertainment things, but I could also imagine somebody working from home using this in some of the ways that they demoed.
1: Well, I'm glad that all you techno optimists are having a good time because I'm like <laughs> ready to go and like move on to some rural farm and unplug from everything. Well, There's something saying... about this that's like... so It's so creepy to me. Like this this intro video that they have looks exactly like an episode of Black Mirror in which everyone is wearing like a nice pastel outfit and living in some futuristic world where they're talking to their face computer goggle things. Like I just... I I'm... I know I'm a lot, I, I usually am. So this is just my instinct, but I hate this. I hate everything about this.
0: Well, I think like part of what I'm saying is not necessarily that I enjoy this this trend as a whole, but that <laughs> I think it's going to take off. I think part because Apple has a really strong track record, but also because inevitably these more immersive technologies are gonna just take hold. The question is who's gonna do it better than the rest? And it just seems like Apple has so many advantages here. Now, when people heard this price, their reaction um, was telling.
3: Apple Vision Pro starts at $34.99. It will be available early next year on apple.com.
0: So $34.99, one person uh, tweeted, can't wait to spend $17,500 so the family can enjoy a movie together on our Apple Vision Pro. <laughs> this is seven <laughs> times the price of Oculus. Now, to keep in mind, the iPhone, when it was unveiled, had a starting price of $4.99. In today's dollars, that would be $720 for an iPhone, and that's the starting price, which means you could easily spend 1000 dollars on a phone. Now, it was a luxury item when it first came out. Now, it's obviously widespread. And in part the cost has gone down, but also people have adjusted their expectations and people are willing to spend more on a phone today than they used to. And so Apple is banking on the fact that in this technology, both the price will go down as they iterate on it. Uh, and they're. All, I also imagine their expectation is that the, the goggles get sleeker as the iPhone got sleeker. So yeah. you can imagine a world 10, 20 years from now where the glasses look not much different than traditional glasses that people put on, right? Well, that was where we started. That was what
1: the Google Glass was. But I feel like we just weren't ready for that yet. And like, it's just a like waiting for people to slowly become more and more amenable to more invasive technologies. Like I don't think in 20 years we're going to have glasses. There's going to be like in our retinas or something like it's, mm-hmm. it's going to get more invasive. It's going to get more creepy. I feel pretty sure of like that. A computer personally. computer in your brain. Yeah. I mean, I'm waiting for Elon to do that. It's okay if it's <laughs> Elon, no worries. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but, me out. The, but speaking of which, it's still really clunky and like kind of, ugly looking. And I, there was this portion in the beginning of their um, promotional video that literally made me laugh out loud. It's so ridiculous.
2: Foundational to Apple Vision Pro is that you're not isolated from other people. When someone else is in the room, you can see them and they can see you. <laughs> Narrate that for listeners of
1: what, what do they see when they see you?
0: Yeah, I mean, you still have this headset on it. And, and one thing is, the battery life isn't great. I think when you detach it, it's only two hours. So you're actually plugged into well, something God most God of, it's only of the two time.
2: Hours.
0: Yeah, but it looks I mean, obviously-
1: like it, it, you're talking to someone with like literally, um, nearly entirely opaque, enormous clunky ski goggles on and it's like, oh, they can see you. Like, no, this is an anti-human, anti-social technology and I will stand by that 100%. No, I agree.
0: I mean, I, I think that this is like the first step if you've ever seen the Pixar movie WALL-E, like where people are just kind of sitting in immersive worlds yeah, and not communicating with each other. It's like the Matrix. Uh, but but I do think you could believe, like once again, I think you could believe that you're not necessarily excited about the world that that that's coming, but also that this is uh, probably going to take hold. And I, and I think... Part of it is that the iPhone itself has brought so many great things. But as a society, you know, you'll be on the subway or you're at dinner with friends or, you know, you're, it's a beautiful day out. I was in the park the other day. It was a beautiful day. And I'm looking around and a ton of people are just staring at their phones. Like people's just the amount of hours they log just staring at their screens is insane. It's and so most disturbing. People, nobody would give that up. I mean, most people wouldn't, but at the same time, we as a society have collectively made some maddening decisions, right? And I think like that makes me think that if this technology gets better, which it will, that will also make some crazy decisions collectively around this. Now I do think that it's going to start off being mostly a solo exercise. Like if you're working from home, you use them or if you're watching a movie by yourself, obviously I think there'll be people who break this trend and wear all these things together. But I think by and large, it just looks so silly that it's hard to imagine people standing around all with the current version of the headset on.
1: Yeah. I also think there's a chance of a, of a pushback on this sort of stuff. Like I do think like, when, when the iPhone was unveiled, I don't think any of us could really have anticipated the, the ramifications of it for, for a whole generation of people growing up with it for how much it was going to um, like smartphones would take over our lives and, and our habits and all of our free time. And people don't even go to the bathroom without scrolling. I mean, it's, I, th- I do think that we've learned a lesson on that front. I do think that there's a growing pull Cultural push against new technologies because of that, for better and for worse, I think at the same time. But I would say that the, I expect there to be a little bit more suspicion and caution, at least among some people, with the adoption of this sort of technology. I know I'm definitely going to go off the grid and never be heard from again. So,
0: <laughs> well, okay. So here's you know one one other you know fellow skeptic, Ricky is Scott Galloway, who you know went to, to TikTok to rip on the uh, this headset. This is what he had to say. Apple's headset is going to be one of the biggest tech failures. I think it's going to rival uh, the Oculus, and it will officially be the most elegant final nail in the coffin of this sort of headset-driven VR consensual hallucination. Uh-huh. I think that Apple likely greenlit this project a couple years ago when it looked like VR offered more potential. Everybody thinks that Mark Zuckerberg and Evan Spiegel are smarter than them, and everyone wants to look and feel younger and wants to know what the youngins are thinking. And I bet that Tim Cook said, We hate Mark Zuckerberg VR offers a lot of potential to go to Greece without going to Greece and perform heart surgery from the Cleveland Clinic on a, you know, a little girl in a, you know, in a developing country, whatever it might be. And I just don't think it's panning out. And I think if they had it to do over, they would take that billion dollars back they've spent on this thing and not release it. <laughs> So I love Scott Galloway. I just think he's wrong on this one. And I think he's confusing. I listened to his his podcast this morning with Kara Swisher, who is more bullish on this technology. And when Kara pressed him on this, it essentially broke down to, as I heard it in my ears, that Scott Gallow does, Galloway doesn't want a world where this technology succeeds, is what I was hearing. He was talking about what ought to be, not what will be. And I think, yes, the price is a lot. But I think like anything, like a lot of technology, the luxury market are the first movers and their adoption of it, especially a a company as rich as Apple can afford to subsidize this thing for a period of time and the innovation around this thing. And so I, I think he's, I think he wants this to fail and I'm kind of with him. I don't, I'm not necessarily like, just like with AI, like things could be useful, but also like could be a, a step in a direction of a dystopian society I'm just not hearing a lot of arguments as to why people won't buy this when the price point gets better.
1: I'll leave this with my final point of disgust from this opening video that they had in which a father is watching his kids or I guess his daughter and a friend playing through these goggles that they can't even make eye contact with him with. And he's recording it through his big clunky black goggles. And they look up at him and they say, hi, dad. It's like, (laughs) that's not your dad. That's a ski mask with a zombie head underneath it. And I just don't like the future that we're headed towards. So, Well, it'll be available,
0: Ricky. I think early next year is what they're saying. So we'll make sure that uh, we we get your name in there for one of these devices. Let's see if you can get the post to get early access to it.
1: No thank you.
0: One funny thing Galloway said is I think he basically compared getting these goggles to a vasectomy, meaning that nobody would sleep with you. uh, So you'd be basically um, like in a backdoor way uh, performing birth control if you wear these goggles, which was kind of a funny joke. But there is a trend in our society right now. That's really interesting. Given this is trendy Tuesday, this was before the goggles were introduced. This was going to be the biggest trend we talk about because it's really jaw dropping. So, you know, there's uh, this company called Komodo Health, uh, which is a healthcare technology company. And they show that in the second half of 2022, vasectomy rates across America were far higher than in the previous years. And according to some calculations from the economists, the Dobbs ruling was associated with a 17% increase in procedures in the six months after the ruling and a 29% increase between July and September. What do you make of this?
1: It seems like a pretty direct correlation um, with the Dobbs decision. I think uh, it's it's not enormously surprising to me. I It's hard to get more clarity in the data in terms of who exactly it is that's getting this procedure. But I wouldn't be surprised if there are married couples in more conservative states who just decide that that is the more sustainable way for them long-term if they've either don't want to have children or if they've already had children. It was already pretty common, 50 million men, 5% of all married men of reproductive age. So it's not surprising to me that this is a trend. At the same time, um, women seem also in the post uh, post dobbs world to be changing their own birth control habits. A Time Harris poll last July found that 21% of women had already changed their birth control method um in that within like the month before, I get or in the preceding month. Um and contraceptive implants and IUDs and more permanent options that are a little bit less faulty or um prone to human error have been going up Um, right now. It's like 17% of women who are on um, birth control. So I think these more permanent solutions are definitely more appealing to people. And in some ways I see it as a, as a positive because it's, I mean, obviously if you're not planning to have a family and you're in a couple and, and a a man can buy in and, and hopefully avoid the, 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 the emotional and physical trauma of an abortion if, if something were to happen. So, I mean, it's unfortunate that this is kind of the world that we live in, but mm. so be it.
0: Well, I you know I think some women are applauding this data, obviously, because they you know I've long been in conversations with people saying share the burden, and you were talking about who's getting this. One thing that's fascinating is that the rise is larger in states with trigger bans, uh, and so the economists looked at this data. So the average increase between July and September was forty one percent in those states compared with twenty six percent elsewhere in Arizona, Florida, Georgia. Tennessee, Texas, and Utah, the rates were more than 40%. Uh, And one of the big question is, well, what's going on here? And I could point to two possible explanations about this. One is the obvious, which is there's a concern that there's a lack of a backup plan uh, if traditional contraception fails. So I think that's like a primary driver of this. But the other could be an act of solidarity, where I think the conversation post-Dobbs was around the disproportionate burden uh, of birth control on women. And I, at least in, anecdotally in my life, there were a lot of conversations around, well, well, why is this burden falling disproportionately on women? And there is this procedure that seems pretty safe. I will link to the show notes of um, some, you know, medical write-ups of just the safety of this procedure. It's not only really safe, but it's actually more effective uh, than uh, tubal ligations. Um, you know, this sort of permanent contraceptive surgery in women. They're both over ninety-nine percent effective, um, but Uh, vasectomies have a one in 2000 failure rate compared to one in 100 for tubal ligation, according to Planned Parenthood's data. So it just seems like men should be doing more here.
1: Yeah. I don't necessarily think that I am that sympathetic to the, like, there's some sort of patriarchal conspiracy that places the burden on women. Like, it's just a fact that our bodies are, are set up and... For, for reproduction and that the burden lies on us and that's the fault of evolution and biology and not necessarily the patriarchy. I do think that there's a, a case to be made in a couple where people are in a, a situation where a man knows that he doesn't want to, um, to have children or a woman knows that in a partnership that they don't want to. I mean, it is certainly less, um, less invasive than like the female equivalent, but I've never understood the argument that women should be absolved from the responsibility. It is our bodies. And I think that we should be the, the first and foremost guard against unwanted pregnancies and being as responsible as possible. And I, I don't, I just don't share the, the, the feeling that it's men's burden too. I think it's a couple's burden. I think it's society's burden. I think it's positive if, if this is a a route that makes sense for people, then great. But if not, I think that we need to teach girls that first and foremost, they, they need to be as responsible as possible of their own reproductive destiny. And fortunately, I, I, I understand that like Dobbs has changed this considerably, but fortunately there have been in, in the scheme of human history, there are a few women that are better positioned to take control over their own reproductive destiny than modern women. And so...
0: Well, I think like, you know, as you've reported, you know, birth control is, is very tough on the body. Carrying a child is very tough on the body. A, a vasectomy birth is, is very,
1: tough if you want to have kids afterwards.
0: Yeah. But like, I'm, I'm stacking it up. Right. So like, all right. So, um, birth control, carrying a child, giving birth, um, breastfeeding, like these are all really hard things. And so if you're stacking that up against a vasectomy for me, I'm like, well, okay, this is the least thing men can do when in a position where it makes sense. When in a right? position
1: where it makes sense. Yes. But those other things are also just biology. What do you mean? Giving birth, breastfeeding, ha- being pregnant. Like that, it's just, it's just reality. And I, do, I don't think it's a But not birth control,
0: you know? Well,
1: I think, I, I mean, I kind of disagree. Like I, I, I think as a as a young woman, like it does feel like that's my responsibility to make sure first and foremost, that I'm protecting myself as best as possible. And I certainly in my age group would never expect a partner to have a vasectomy or to want to go down that route, especially because it's not, you know, vasectomy reversals are possible, but they're not guaranteed. They're pretty permanent. I think that there's, I think truly there's a, a, a world where there would be a huge demand for like an a more impermanent male birth control. If the alternative arises, it's it's been there've been large scale studies. It's been difficult to um, produce. I also think that there's less of an incentive necessarily to produce it. But I do think that there would be a lot of young men that would be interested in that. Um, just in February, uh, Nature and Communications, this uh, scientific journal published a um, a very promising report on a new experimental method that would block enzymes that s- uh, sperm need to swim. And it was pro- promising in mice as a birth control method. Um, and we have the same enzyme in humans. So I think that that innovation is probably something where I'd be more willing to have the conversation about a shared burden. But saying that someone needs to have a vasectomy or that that's somehow a man's responsibility. I just, I don't agree with that.
0: Yeah. And I think like, you know, not many people I'm hearing are saying it they need to, but more like it's a, it's, you know, when appropriate, like when for instance, a couple decides that they don't want to have kids anymore. Like it certainly seems like the kind of thing that is a gesture that would be really welcome to a lot of women that I know, which is just like, Hey, like I, I do think that when you're stacking up, all the childbearing, rearing, like, sexual wellness, health, prevention, you know, responsible decision-making, it feels like women just have a lot more responsibility, and nobody's saying, like, like, that, like, anybody should force men to do anything, I'm just saying, like, I think this is a healthy development, and, and I'm certainly cheering on the development of male birth control, because... You know all the writing you did, like it 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 really does strike me as a lot to ask of people to you know chemically manipulate their bodies over time. Uh, and obviously in in the absence of a great alternative, you know it it's a sacrifice that I think a lot of couples know that they have to make. But if there are better alternatives that are safer, uh, and less costly biologically, I'm, I think we should strongly consider it. And, you know, not even even if it's men, but especially if it's men, because then I think you could start to even the scales a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's also a case to be made that... Um even not just like in the shared burden perspective, but as a young man, you might want to go down this route because you just don't want to be on the hook for an unplanned pregnancy, and it's an insurance method beyond, like you know, it's beyond your control if your partner is is reliable with taking their birth control on time or something like that. So, mm-hmm. I think that's a better route in the end. But the fact that already five percent of married men of reproductive age have had a vasectomy, um, it it's not surprising to me that it is already that high. That seems pretty high, um, and I'm. I'm not shocked to hear post-Obs that it's even higher. Um, and I expect in the short term, at least, until science catches up, that that will continue to rise.
0: Yeah, and, and one thing to just point out as we move off of this is it's still lower, the percentage of men who have a vasectomy, than it was 20 years ago. So there's a whole lot going on there. There's been a few years now where the data has been reversing, and it was especially aggressive post-Obs. And so, you know, we'll, we'll we'll continue monitoring that. Obviously, I think... This is one of those areas where uh, I think that policy is driving like some major social transformations. And, you know, we'll see as this debate continues to dominate our politics, whether we see those numbers in show.
1: Well, two trends that are going on at the same time that might be surprising and seem contradictory, but aren't when you dig under the surface a little bit here, is a rise in um, developed countries and Western countries of vegetarian and vegan diets from um, up to at least 6% of the population in America and up to 10 to 15% that fall into a flexitarian or reducetarian sort of category. Meanwhile, there's an Increase in meat consumption consumption in larger developing economies. Um, just the opposite trend is occurring, where the rates of vegetarianism in India and China, for example, have fallen pretty precipitously since 2019, um, compared to 2022. India was at 32 percent vegetarian today; it's at 26 percent, and China from 9 percent to 5 percent. And in terms of absolute numbers, that's pretty significant because these are obviously enormous countries. So. Two totally opposite trends happening at the same time. What do you think?
0: I mean, the India trend is really fascinating. I know that we're, we're Americans and we, we always like to think about ourselves, but if you care about animal rights, the, the kind of gains that you need to protect, like if you're playing defense, is in India because by far India is the highest percentage of people who are vegetarian in the world by leaps and bounds. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is the biggest country in the world. So when you say like the numbers are reversing there, due to the availability of meat and all their cultural changes. And then you're also seeing similar numbers in China, which was very high as a percentage of vegetarians. Even before this, it wasn't India levels, but you know, 9.6 to 5.4 is a massive change in a couple of years. Yeah. Like, so if you care about animal rights, that's a huge deal. Those are the two biggest countries in the world. But also, if you care about the environment, and we've talked previously about the environmental impact of raising animals, that's a huge deal. We're talking about like huge numbers of people who are eating meat. So, the increase in suffering, increase in pollution, and global warming, if you believe in that link, that's massive. And, you know, the, Peter Singer, the sort of ethics professor uh, at Princeton, who's written all about animal rights for many, many years. He wrote his first book, Animal Liberation in 1975. And he wrote this piece in the Atlantic basically saying, if you would have told me that we would have convinced more and more people to become vegetarian, vegan. And he was basically said, you know, vegan was like such a radical idea back then. He basically Mm -hmm. didn't even talk about it because it would turn people off. And that you see like the rise of vegetarianism, the rise of veganism, especially in Western countries. And you're seeing a corresponding increase in the market of meat alternatives and lab-grown meat. Yeah. But you're also seeing uh, the increase in meat consumption. He basically was despondent <laughs> in this piece. Yeah. And I don't blame him. It's it's a very frustrating combination of data.
1: I have a kind of meta theory on what's going on here. But I think, you know, I mean, 99% of our meat in America is um, factory farmed in in some sort. And I think what happens when you're developing in an economy and when you all of a sudden have a very prosperous nation that, um, you know, the, the supply chain becomes kind of unlinked from the traditional farming sort of farm-to-table situation, it's inevitable that when when your population is booming and your economy is growing, that you figure out how to maximize that as much as possible. You centralize that as much as possible. You move towards these um, sort of mass-produced factory farm routes. And then once you're a prosperous enough nation that we have the luxury to be able to sit back and say... Hmm, actually, this feels kind of unethical. Or, oh, I'd rather have the more ethical choice or um try the the lab grown alternative or the the meat alternative. And I have enough money to spend on beyond meat, even though it's a little bit more expensive because I have the luxury to do so and I'm I'm putting ethics over just feeding myself at the moment because I can afford to. Um, that seems like a natural progression. And I think what's happening right now is that we have these emerging economies that are at that earlier point in development where we were not so long ago. I mean in in just the 90s it was 1% of the population that is was vegan or vegetarian and that's exploded and I I think it's just a progression of how a society develops and where they put their resources and frankly I'm I'm not bullish on any of the ways that we today are um, indulging in like vegan and vegetarian diets mm-hmm. in America. I think, you know, it's not going to be beyond meat and these hyper processed alternatives in the future. That I think the lab grown alternatives will prove to be more palatable to people, more economically sustainable once they're developed and um, produced in the mass scale, more environmentally sustainable, more geographically sustainable in terms of the factory um, or the um, farm acreage that you need. And so I think ultimately, American innovation will end up becoming more profitable for the rest of the developing economies in the world to adopt. But at the moment, we're just not there yet. But in the end, I think this will probably even out
0: yeah well we linked in the show we'll look at the show notes to the segment we did on meat alternatives i i think i can't remember when i bought it but i bought beyond meat some time ago and i've gotten absolutely crushed on that position and finally me liquidated too. it never i actually got take, rid of it yesterday interestingly enough but, never
1: take stock advice for me because so far i'm crypto <laughs> and beyond meat
0: well we well, you know beyond Meat was more awesome. like an ethical you know like i'm this is like my internal version of esg like i was like you know what i want to invest in Companies, I truly, I want to succeed for the good of the planet, and that one was one where I definitely paid the price for that ethics. I think the the thing that's fascinating and and that Singer points to in his piece is the relationship between the ethical arguments versus self interested arguments. And he he talks about how he and another professor ran an experiment at Princeton, I believe it was, where they um, gave students ethics ethical arguments uh, against meat consumption. And then they had a control group and then they studied because they had the, this is kind of a creepy study because, but they had the student's IDs, their, their, um, food, like whatever you call them, like the, the card that you get your food at the, mm-hmm. the mess hall. So you could see what kids are, are eating. And they studied what happens after you give the ethical arguments against meat consumption and they decreased pretty significantly. It seems their meat consumption. And then they ran the same experiment. Uh, elsewhere on arguments, uh, environmental arguments against consumption, And so what Singer is essentially saying is, well, ethical arguments do work, but he also points to the fact that people are acknowledging in greater numbers, like paradoxically, ethical arguments can work, but also there are a lot of people who will acknowledge the problems but not do anything about it. And that's why he said, he he basically argues, and I'd be interested in your opinion on this, for government intervention. Because he says, like, this is an area where people will support when you give them propositions, ballot propositions, he pointed to California uh, and 14 other states that require minimum space allowances for farmed animals, and says, hey, people, when, when asked to individually make choices, continue to make bad choices. But if you ask them to handcuff themselves through regulation uh, for the greater good, they'll do that, you know? It's almost like you know people, like if I wanna lose weight, I'm like, all right, if, you, if I'm in making each individual meal choice on my Uber Eats, I'm gonna make some bad decisions, but if I order all my food ahead of time for this week, I'll probably make better choices.
1: I'm not opposed to ballot propositions that are as specific as the California one in terms of just like really basic, fundamental, like an animal should be able to turn around in the cage that it's kept in for its entire life before it's slaughtered sort of things. I don't like the whole, like, World Economic Forum, you're going to eat bugs and like it sort of shtick. I don't <laughs> think that's going to work. I think this it has to be a, a gradual social adoption. But I mean, I, I think the ethical arguments, when you look at the statistics of why people who don't eat meat say that they don't, um, even people who are in like a kind of... Uh, gray area situation. Like I'm vegan for my household, but I'm pescatarian socially, just because I'd like to not be the person who can't like get pizza or sushi or something. When I feel like I'm voting with my dollar, and I think a lot of people share that. The I, um the, our, the environmental concerns are not what's driving people by and large. It's the ethical concerns, and for me, it was. Having a a science class, uh, I think it was my environmental science class in my freshman year of high school, where they showed a video or like a documentary and just like a short clip of slaughter, and I was just like, "Yep, nope, I'm out for good." That's how I and, became a
0: vegetarian too. Yeah, I was actually watching. There was a we were running singers. I used to be a college debater, and we we were running um, clips of the factory farms. And once I saw that, I was like, no. But I think, you know, one thing that's worth mentioning is actually a lot of this is being driven by increases in poultry uh, consumption. So chicken and and, and turkey. Mm-hmm. And what Singer points out is actually these are some of the most heinous uh, factory farming practices and you have to slaughter more chicken and turkey to get at a sort of a equivalent amount of protein and calories Mm. than you would beef. So that's troubling as well. And so, but I think like in the end, the sense is that, you know, if the US is going from 2.9 to 5.1 vegetarians uh, percentage wise, and that trend keeps going. So we're going the opposite direction of India and China, like at least from this country's perspective, where the we know what that ethical debate sounds like. My yeah. sense is over time, when you have that and the, um, the meat alternative market, that you may see an overall decrease in meat consumption in the United States over time as those two points on the graph meet. The problem is if those other trends in China and India continue, as well as other developing countries... Yeah. Well, not that China. Then, then it doesn't matter, honestly, what we oh, do. It's really I don't sad. think that's.
1: I don't think know? that's true, though. I think if if we have a large enough market demand that we spur domestic innovation here, technologically, I think particularly on the lab ground front. That would be easily replicable in other parts of the world that have even larger populations that are even more densely populated. They will be overwhelmingly incentivized to adopt those technologies if we if we produce them, and I think that we will be the leaders to do so. So, I'm still optimistic. Well,
0: that's a happy happy note to end on.
1: Here's one trend that's certainly headed in the wrong direction in America right now. If someone gets murdered in this country, it's being described as, quote, a coin flip in terms of whether or not it will actually be solved in the end. Uh, we have had the lowest clearance clearance rate, which is the percentage of of murders that are end up with somebody being charged um, in more than half a century in the last seven months of 2020. And. Um, and it's among the worst in the industrialized world. Experts are saying this is something that's never happened before in America, this reversal in trends. And the the gaps in FBI reporting are, are egregious, but this is going from um, like 90 and 100% clearance in some, which I think we can throw a little cold water on, but like 90% clearance back in um, the 60s and 70s to now 50%. So. The people who are dying in other people's hands in this country are not um, finding justice in the end, which is a very disturbing development.
0: Yeah, and it's worth mentioning that clearance doesn't mean they're necessarily convicted. So it's like even worse than that. If you think about getting justice for murders, it's even lower than that. And there's this doom loop going on, which is people are less confident, especially in certain neighborhoods that are underserved by detectives. People are... Uh, less confident that murders are going to be solved. So there's less likely to cooperate with the police because the costs of cooperation are high uh, because you could be targeted after that. And the benefits are low if you're going to have confidence that people are going to solve it. So it's leading to fewer people cooperating, which then drives the numbers down further, which is really scary. And there are a couple of explanations, Ricky, that people give for this. One Mm -hmm. is a good place to start is what you talk about the 60s and 70s, is that Um, this is guy, Jeff Asher, who's a crime analyst, uh, who actually incidentally wrote a piece in the Atlantic today, which we'll talk about in a second, but he talked about how, Hey, like these sixties and seventies, let's put it aside because this is pre Miranda, uh, where the police departments were like abusing due process. And they also were, which is just to clarify,
1: just to clarify Miranda being Miranda rights and you have the right to remain silent. So you don't have to incriminate yourself Mm -hmm. with the police.
0: Yeah. So like that whole rise of Miranda and the associated rights uh, of the accused. And then you also have like what he thinks was some misreporting of the data. So he says, basically put that aside, but even if you put that aside, there has been a massive decrease in clearance rates since then. And one explanation he gave is the uh, rise in percentage of crimes and murders committed by with guns. And he says in the 1960s, 50% of murders were committed with guns. Today it's And he says, yeah, like one could just say that's a correlation, but he says actually solving crimes uh, and murders involving guns is a lot harder because of the distance involved. Uh, Let's go to this clip of an interview that Derek Thompson did with him.
3: And the reason is that firearm murders are much harder to solve. You have oftentimes fewer witnesses. You have, they take place from further away. There's a a great uh, Los Angeles detective, John Skaggs, who was the protagonist in Ghetto Side, which is this terrific book about murder in Los Angeles, but really is about murder in any big American city? And he talked about these what he calls ground ball murders, self solvers. You, the police walk in and they find the husband, and the husband has the bloody knife in his hand, and the you know the the spouse's body is is below him, and this is a cleared murder the police didn't do anything to solve this it was it was solved itself and so he talked about how 15 to 20% of all murders are going to be these self-solvers and the majority of the self-solvers are more likely to be non-firearm murders so as we have more and more firearm murders and a higher share of murders are firearm murders the likelihood of them basically being self-solvers goes down
0: and so, Ricky, there are two other explanations that experts give here. One is that we have higher standards now uh, for what constitutes guilt, in part because of the rise of television and the way that like cases are presented on television, and also a true crime podcasts, etc. So these juries are coming to these cases with a higher, you know, sort of a higher barrier to get to guilty. Uh, and then there is another explanation, which I. I find quite convincing, which is that we have fewer and more extended police officers. In 1960, there were an average of 10 detectives and detectives being the crucial police officers here because they're the ones who investigate murders. Uh, there were an average of 10 detectives for every murder in the United States in 1960 by 2020 that had decreased to 2.5 detectives. So 10 to 2.5 detectives per murder in the United States.
1: This is also, um, compounded by the fact that just in the pandemic, you have such an insane backlog of cases and, um, I mean, police weren't on the ground in the way that they they typically were. So that's that's already stacking up. And then you have the issue of, um, especially in the post-2020 era, just recruitment problems and the police of getting new blood in there to start investigating. So that makes perfect sense. And then you pair that also with the social issue that you mentioned before of the breakdown of trust in terms of um, witnesses feeling more afraid of coming forward. I think potentially, especially if it's more like, gang violence or something that you might be incriminated by just having been in proxy. There might be a lack of of trust in going to the police and, and putting yourself in that position. Um, that's something that a lot of people in law enforcement are pointing to as an issue. Um, the commissioner of the Philadelphia Police Department, who is named Danielle Outlaw, which is kind of perfect, <laughs> um, said, We're, we've gotten in our own way. It has to be a two-way street as it is with any relationship in terms of the relationship with the community and people feeling open enough to come. But, um, another thing that might be related, this is just my own pet theory here is, um, the, the issue with, especially with guns and stuff. I mean, if, if, if gun violence occurs and the police are not there pretty much immediately to see who's committed this crime, then it's, I mean, the odds that it gets solved, I think, goes down considerably. And there have been sizable increases in response times with police, especially in major cities, which is where this tends to be a problem. But like, just for example, here in New York, the average police response time, obviously, a murder is a higher threshold and they'll be more responsive, but it went from 18 to 33 minutes just in the past couple of years. So the police are, are less able to get there and actually get to the bottom of things as well too. And, and when it's a, a rapid sort of gun violence situation, I think that probably is a huge barrier to actually solving a crime.
0: Well, you know, some good news though, uh, David Asher, the same guy I quoted before, just had a piece, I think it dropped today or yesterday in the Atlantic. I almost discovered it by accident this morning when I was looking him up, but he He actually looked at some of the preliminary data this year. And as we've talked about on this podcast, this data is notoriously difficult to parse because there's not a uniform reporting. Um, But what he said essentially is murder is down about 12% year to date in more than 90 cities that have released data for 2023 compared with data uh, from the same date in 2022. Big cities tend to have a slightly uh, slightly more amplified um, numbers than the national trend. But he says these are like potentially if they... Like if they hold it is some of the largest reversals we've ever seen as a country. And he pointed to a few cities where there's particularly striking numbers. He said murders down thirteen percent in New York City. Uh, shootings are down twenty five percent relative to last year. same time. murders down more than twenty percent in Los Angeles, Houston, Philadelphia. and murders down thirty percent or more in Jackson, Mississippi, Atlanta, Georgia, Little Rock, Arkansas, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Milwaukee. Wisconsin and others. So he's saying something's going on this year. And he tries to posit some theories, but he really isn't sure. But that's at least good news because Mm -hmm. fewer murders and you're starting to see a debate even among progressives, right? Where like the Chicago, uh, the candidate who won the Chicago mayorals race was arguing for more detectives, right? And you're starting to see this messaging change, which I think is actually a policy change too, from from a lot of these even more progressive Democrats who are saying, solve more murders, which I think I welcome. Like I may not agree with some of the other things they have to say about policing, but all right, let's all agree. Let's solve more murders. Let's invest more in detectives. So if you invest more in detectives and hopefully we see these numbers go down, they may be actually causation there, but for sure, if they're happening at the same time, then the doom loop can reverse and we could start yeah. to give people more confidence that police can get to the bottom of these things.
1: And I also don't think that we should be holding up the the 60s and 70s as I mean first of all that might be inflated data that police departments were coming out with but like that wasn't the the pinnacle of justice we know that there right. have been so many wrongful convictions. I think it's a huge positive that juries have a higher threshold in determining guilt. I'd rather err on the side of um of due process and making sure that somebody actually is proven guilty. Um, but yeah, I mean, to, to your point, credit to as much as I'm not a fan of Brandon Johnson of Chicago, like he, this was his thing is saying we should invest in more detectives to make sure that justice is actually served and and we can short circuit, um, the crime loop here, uh, which I'm, I'm completely in favor of, especially considering that, um, they only have a 44% clearance rate in Chicago. Um, and yeah, A little side note. Did you know that Lori Lightfoot now, now that you can't get her wonderful uh, press conferences, you can get a lecture from her at Harvard. They've they've hired her as a Harvard lecturer, the the pinnacle of politics.
0: Yeah, well, good for her. You know, she I'm sure she has a lot to say. Um, mm-hmm. Are you going to be taking that class? <laughs>
1: Oh yeah, you know me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, okay, Whitefoot well, Stan. Yeah, I think before we move off of this, I think it's obviously worth mentioning also that the geography and race of what uh, murders get solved is obviously another trend here. And so, like, if you are, if you, you know, famously, people looked at the data of like if you're on Bourbon Street where the tourists are, or you're, you know, even just a mile away, the clearance rates on those murders are very different. And so, obviously, yeah. there are certain people in a society that. Uh, the news and everybody else gets hyped up about solving their murders and then there are some people where it's chalked up to regular occurrence and you know hopefully hopefully in this new environment the resources are spread more evenly uh, across cities and actually like people are set not just where the the headline is juicy but where you know the most suffering is happening
1: This is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. Let's turn to some listener voicemails here. Um, we have Jamie from Knoxville, Tennessee, who wanted to respond to our segment about no-fault divorce.
4: Hi, this is Jamie from Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm calling about the no-fault divorce segment. Um, I'm 40 and I've had two no-fault divorces. The first one, we're just immature 22-year-olds wanting extra military benefits and PTSD, the effects of combat and binge drinking killed the second one. My 85 year old grandmother did not speak to me for almost a year after each of those because she said, I was never physically abused, so there was no reason to be divorced. Um, now I've been with a man who was married for 20 years with four kids, um, but was only happy for the first 10 of it. Um, he waited until all of his kids were out of the house until he asked for his no-fault divorce. Um, I was raised on emotionally immature and unstable parents and I emancipated at 15. Mayor seemed like a trap. Um, he was raised by a single mom who left his alcoholic father when he was four, and uh, marriage seemed like a stabilizing factor for him. Um, we feel like no-fault divorces play a part in the dissolution of the traditional American family life, which has put the number of children in the U.S. low well under replacement value. We also know that bad marriages raise emotionally unwell children who often repeat that cycle in their adult relationships. Quality mental health providers are getting harder to come by, even as stigma has dropped, which doesn't help those in bad marriages or the products of one. Financial issues are a big driver for divorce, and our current housing and living expenses just add that stress. So as long as legislators care more about family-first slogans instead of family-first policies, no-fault divorces are the only viable options for couples where one or both individuals are just unwilling or unable to find a way to stay connected in a really tumultuous world full of seemingly infinite options. Sometimes marriages just can't work because the people in them are not mentally well and don't know how or are not trying to get better and grow together. Maybe no one is getting physically abused, but living with a self-destructive or emotionally unstable person can have ruinous impacts on mental and physical health for everyone for years to come. Thank you guys. I really love what you do and I listen every single week. Keep it coming. Thanks. Bye.
0: Well, Jamie, I just want to say, I know it's really hard to share some of those details and and thank you for being so vulnerable and Mm -hmm. hopefully that we did you some justice in that segment and you just offer so much. Honestly, we should have had you on now that, now that we know you, but you say a lot that resonates, I mean, you know, obviously from your personal experience, but layering in statistics. And so I think you really add to the conversation.
1: Yeah, I would say um, this is just kind of the, the detail that that justifies the point that I made last time as well of like, even regardless of what my personal views are on the meta trends of divorce and stuff, like especially from the legislative perspective, I just don't think that there's any, any justification for painting with a broad brush and saying that that one person's divorce is more worthy than someone else's. Like that does feel like a fundamental exercise of freedom. And in fact, I would probably be persuaded to say that, that marriage doesn't necessarily need to be a function of the state in the first place. So I'm all for, um,
0: I'm actually with you on that, Rick.
1: personal, personal yeah. liberty. I mean, I'm, I'm pro marriage. I'm pro family. I just don't know if it needs to be as legislatively linked as possible. So um, thanks Jamie. Those are uh, very thoughtful points and uh, definitely, put a lot of of color and and personal detail into the issues that we're talking about so it's great to hear from you
0: all right well thank you everybody for listening we will be back here on thursday Uh, you can send in voicemails at 321-200-0570 and remember to rate review and subscribe again Uh, remember that we at the moment don't you know waste your time with advertising we don't charge you for this we don't gate any of our content and the one thing you could do is if you love this show, get on there and Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts and give us reviews, uh, because that really helps us uh, build awareness for the show, but also share it with your friends, uh, especially if there's a segment that you think resonates with people. So thank you very much. We'll talk to you Thursday.
1: The last Debate is a part of The Branch Network. The show is produced by Miki Ayoub, research support by Ariane Misra, video editing by Julia Waldman, and editing and sound design by Dean Metherill.